Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. We are back together after our enforced break from each other. Woo! <laughs> we hope you're doing okay. We know a lot of you will be listening to this while staying indoors at the moment, whether that's because you are socially distancing, in isolation, or indeed working from home like myself at the moment. And we know that times are hard for an overwhelming majority of you right now. So we're not going to encourage anyone to sign up to support the show on Patreon right now. But we did just want to let our existing patrons know that we will be releasing bonus content for them soon. We'd also like to send a really big thank you out to the following people who have recently become patrons. So thank you very much to Demi Marsh, Esme Wingrove, Laura McNamee and Rob Ford. I thought I was doing the names. Oh, fuck. Do you want to do the names? No, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) This week's case is an absolute head fuck, so you have been warned. We are delving into the murky world of the Secret Intelligence Service as we take a deep dive into the unexplained death of MI6 codebreaker Gareth Williams. Oh, and I think this case, Mark. Honestly, I know, I'm so glad honestly, you're covering this. I've been down a rabbit hole with this one, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's been quite a while since we've actually tackled a proper unexplained death. Because um, for me, this kind of reminded me of the Doctor David Kelly episode we did way back in season one. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because where I've been putting the videos up onto YouTube, I re-listened to that episode quite yeah, recently, and it was you such did. a good episode and such an interesting case. We had really terrible sound quality, even worse than this. Um, but it was a really good episode, wasn't it? A really, it really interesting was. case. And I think um, that but... was the episode that you did a poem in. It was. Mm-hmm. I did a poem sort of fairly early on. It's beautiful. Not one that I wrote myself, one that I ripped off from somewhere. Um, and I know I covered Forrest Hayes quite recently, didn't I? The Google mm-hmm. exec who was found dead on his yacht. But I think that's kind of different because um, although we don't know exactly what happened in that case, we know that we know who was involved so whether he was murdered or not we know who was there with him so we kind of know with that one this is a bit more of an uncertain i think with gareth williams Mm. so with this case it's a complete a fucking enigma as complex as some of the codes gareth williams would crack during the course of his normal work and therein may lie the solution But before we get to the numerous plausible explanations that surround Mr. Williams' death, we shall start at the very beginning. And I would normally dart back and forth, take you to the scene in real time, blah, blah, blah. Um, But I'm just going to regale you with this story uh, through a sequential narrative. Because I think otherwise I'm just going to lose you in the first five seconds. It is quite complex. There is a lot into it, isn't there? There is, yeah. And as a result of that, I've also decided to split the episode into two parts. But fear not, both will be released simultaneously. Two for one. (laughs) Two for one, absolutely is. So um, part one, what you're listening to now, will focus on Gareth's life, the circumstances surrounding his death and the official line on his death. Part two will be shorter and will focus purely on our theories of how this genius codebreaker's life came to an abrupt end at the age of 31 in a locked bag in a bath in a flat in Pimlico. Gareth Wynne Williams was born on the 26th of September in 1978 on Anglesey, a pretty sizeable island off the northwest coast of Wales. Mum Ellen and Dad Ian were also parents to Gareth's sister Kerry and the family led a pretty normal life. At primary school, Gareth's remarkable intellect soon presented itself and he was regarded as an exceptionally gifted pupil, a bit like me. Um, from the, 
<laughs> From the age of five, he developed what would go on to become a lifelong obsession with computers. While most of his classmates were still playing with toys, Gareth had already passed a GCSE in maths, something Bethan could only dream of even now at the age of 30. Screw you. You used to be my boss. You know I had a B in maths. Thank you very much. Oh, I, d- I never saw the paperwork confirming that. So, <laughs> um, No, I'm sure you did. Actually, you were quite clever at school, weren't you? I'm still clever now. Yeah, of course. But I'm just saying you were like a little genius. <laughs> Um, So anyway, at the age of 10, Gareth went to secondary school, so he went a year or two early, and he gained A grades in A-level maths and computer science by the time he was 13. Wow. And the normal age in in this country is 18 uh, for A-level, so I mean, that is super clever. He was literally a child genius, and so the school contacted Bangor University, which was located just a few miles away on the Welsh mainland. Gareth secured a place there and began to study on a part-time basis for a maths degree. His maths teacher there said he was the best logician he had ever met, whatever the fuck that means, and remarked that he had a super fast brain. That's like logical thinking, I think. Like, um, like It must be. I mean, it's something to do with maths. Yeah. And also studying part-time for a degree. Amazing. Yeah, because he, I think he still kind of went to school a bit as well. Wow. Um, but he was like your classic child genius, most certainly. Mm. But with this incredible intelligence came loneliness. Fellow pupils remember Gareth as a loner. Dylan Parry, a former classmate, described him as isolated. And he said that his abilities shut him off from everybody else. He said that Gareth was naive and believed that someone could easily take advantage of him. He recalled Gareth travelling by train each week to university while still living at home with his parents. Too clever for school, too young for university. And so Gareth found himself in a sort of limbo. But his family have said that that wasn't necessarily the case. They were a close family and Gareth was particularly close to his father. The two took up competitive cycling and were also part of a cycle club. So Gareth did have people in his life. He just wasn't necessarily the sort of person that wanted to go out partying with his contemporaries. <laughs> did you like how I said contemporaries? <laughs> I did that for my sister because we always say it like that. Contemporaries. I wondered. Um, I, I remember you used to say something else like that as well. I can't remember. I had to do it. it. Um, and I have just got to point out at this point particularly because I like to diagnose everybody I meet with autism. But I do think Gareth um, may have been on the autistic spectrum. And when I've looked at some of the signs and symptoms of autism in adolescence, Gareth pretty much ticks all of the boxes. And I'm not saying this for any other reason than to explain why he was the way he was. Yeah, I think it gives you a bit of an insight into him, doesn't it? Yeah. I think I'm doing it purely for context. It's Mm -hmm. not so that we can necessarily label him. It's just so that before we're we're quick to judge him, that there is a bit of context around it. Mm -hmm. And that is only me saying that that's, you know, likely, as far as I know, he was never diagnosed, but you do the math. Did you like that? Another little little, markism. A little pun, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that is a markism, actually. Um, So in the late 90s, at the age of 18, Gareth headed east to Manchester. He signed up to complete a PhD at university there, where his professors described him as reserved. His dissertation centred on computer games, which do have a lot of mathematical formulas in them and code attached. So I suppose that kind of makes sense. And Gareth was an avid gamer. 
you know, probably does teach kids a lot. And I mm-hmm. think parents are very quick to say, uh, you know, kids shouldn't spend as much time on computers. But I kind of disagree and think the opposite. I guess it depends on what they're playing and what they're doing with their time. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. If it's like Call of Duty or something, that's probably not as productive as something else. Mm. And it was this passion for online gaming that got Gareth noticed by the British Security Service. They approached him while he was studying advanced mathematics at St Catherine's College, Cambridge, and asked him to come and work for them at GCHQ in Cheltenham. And I don't think this was your classic example of, you know, some shady MI6 character hanging round uh, Cambridge recruiting young people. Although Gareth was studying at Cambridge at the time, he definitely came to prominence uh, via the online gaming rotation that he got. So it wasn't just recruited from Cambridge like a lot of people have been historically. It was purely through that online gaming presence, which I just found so interesting that MI6 are actually looking at stuff like that and noticing people's talents and then recruiting them yeah definitely now i'm sure you all have heard of gchq so i'm not going to go into loads of detail here but if you've not heard of them they are basically an offshoot of the secret intelligence service they're responsible for monitoring communications so online chatter amongst terrorist cells they'll listen to phone calls monitor emails stuff like that anything where there is a potential threat to national security at least that's what they say they do and i'm sure that is a large part of what they do but there are probably lots of other things that they do that we will never know about and that's fine by me but i think they've got four or five thousand people working at that base in cheltenham so that's an awful lot of people and i'm sure yes an awful lot of people are required to listen to communications but i do always wonder what exactly goes on there i'm sure there's a lot more that we're not privy to Mm. Gareth was torn between continuing his studies at Cambridge or working for GCHQ, and in the end GCHQ won out. He withdrew from his course and moved to Cheltenham to begin working for the intelligence services as a codebreaker. Gareth was described by his colleagues as stable, reliable and potentially brilliant. This was the perfect job for somebody like him. Analyzing data, cracking codes and working in a small team or on his own with maximum autonomy. And his job was his life. He rented a room in a large house on the outskirts of Cheltenham and his former landlady Jenny Elliott said he never brought anybody back, very rarely socialized and would often work very late into the night. She described him as the perfect tenant. He was no trouble and very much kept himself to himself. He didn't own a TV and it would appear he lived a very modest life. His room was sparsely furnished. There was a single child-sized bed, a small chest of drawers, three upright wooden chairs and a gas heater. And for Gareth, it appeared that was enough. He continued to live there for 10 years. I always Doesn't find that... it incredible when people don't own a TV. Was that what you were about to say? Well, I, I mean, obviously that's like weird as fuck, but I was going to say what's, <laughs> what's more weird and what makes me feel sad for him is that he's got, not only has he got a single bed, he's got a single child-sized bed. And I Gareth don't even was five know if foot I seven, could fit so... on a child-sized bed. Well, he's probably about a little bit taller than you. He would have been at five, yeah. five seven. But yeah, I mean, isn't that just sad, really? Yeah. I don't know, you know no I'm five foot two judgment. and I don't think I'd be very comfortable on a child-sized bed. Aww. I just find it weird, it yeah. It is sad, isn't it? 
but he's it is, happy, it, so... Exactly, I think that was it. You know, obviously his job was his life and mm. that was the important thing. Anything else just didn't matter to him. So, you know, he would have been on good money at GCHQ, so he wasn't renting a room um, because that was the only option available to him. He could have afforded his own, afforded his own place, but, you know, obviously that wasn't what he wanted. He wasn't into material possessions or, you know, an exceptional quality of life. His job was his everything. Yeah. So due to the nature of his work, Gareth never spoke to his family or friends about his job. They just knew not to ask. And consequently, very little is actually known about Gareth's early days at GCHQ. What we do know is that although Gareth was exceptionally bright and capable, he was only a middle ranking officer there, initially anyway. Sure, he had access to top secret information, but he wasn't a decision maker, somebody who worked at a strategic level, say. He was more of a brain for hire, certainly in the first years of his tenure there. While Cheltenham-based GCHQ gathered intelligence from Europe, Africa and Russia, its US counterpart, the National Security Agency, or the NSA, assisted them from a top-secret RAF base near Harrogate in Yorkshire called Menwith Hill. And we know that Gareth arrived at this top-secret RAF base shortly after the invasion of Iraq in March 2003, seven years before his untimely death and three years after beginning work at GCHQ. I think that's why it reminded me of Dr. David Mm. Kelly so much as well, because that was very much set against the backdrop of the Iraq war. Yeah, there's other sort of bits to the timeline that kind of fit in with both. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, their paths may have crossed. They may have done, yeah. I would say at some point, David Kelly would have been um, visiting GCHQ, I'm sure. Yeah, I know that he, yeah. Yeah, he travelled abroad extensively around mm-hmm. that time. Um, and I'm sure Gareth Williams would have done so too. So mm. um, GCHQ and the NSA were increasingly focused on the threat of Islamist violence at home and abroad. One former GCHQ security consultant said, Between the UK and the US, we were deluged. I just cannot say this word. Deluged. Deluged. This is the new lure. 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 I can't say that. This is the new lure. Lure. Deluged. Lure. Okay, so between Between the the UK and the US. Okay, they were deluged. Deluged. Perfect. By the chatter from radicals here and in America as they talked on landlines, satellite phones and mobile phones with contacts in hot countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan, as well as with Saudi and hubs like Dubai. A group around Gareth at this time worked on software to assemble, search and analyse this data, drawing out patterns and meanings because a lot of this chatter at that time was heavily encrypted. So a lot of what Gareth and his team were doing was just de-encrypting it essentially and that required a a real mathematical, logical brain, I guess. Amazing, isn't it, that people can think like that and be able to decode stuff like that. It's incredible. It really is. Yeah. So the reason I'm kind of talking a little bit about this is that just to kind of give a bit of context, because Gareth's position at GCHQ was elevated at this time, particularly with something called the liquid bomb plot, which was a group of British radicals who were found to be planning to detonate homemade explosives on board seven flights to major North American cities. Wow. 
Yeah, which is just terrible. And I think I remember that at the time. Um, intercepting emails and phone calls between these plotters and their contacts abroad. Gareth was flying between the UK and the US working at Fort Meade, which is the NSA headquarters in Baltimore. Um, so I'm sure he was flying all over the place. But yeah, that was his job basically to analyze and decrypt this chatter between these terrorist cells. So Gareth's job brought him into close contact with US intelligence, Islamic radicals and Middle Eastern agents. He would rub shoulders with the Russians too, according to one foreign intelligence analyst based in the UK. He described how technology and software honed by GCHQ was deployed in tracking a Moscow-backed sleeper cell to which Britain had been alerted as early as 2003. The case blew up some years later in June 2010 when 10 people were arrested in the US and accused of being part of an espionage ring. One of them, who you might recall, was a glamorous 28-year-old by the name of Anna Chapman, and she'd lived in the UK for five years working for this cell. And according to a former GCH contractor, Williams had been obsessed by this case, its methodology and the characters. And I think you would become a bit obsessed, wouldn't you? Because you're working and, and finding all this stuff out, and then something like that goes on, and it's almost like a, a novel or something... Um, yeah, and it was. Obsessed, I think. I think she was almost like a double agent. So she was on British soil, but I think working for the Russians as well as Britain. So um, that probably shocked him. He probably thought, mm. "I can't believe there are people um, working around us that are actually double crossing us." But that does happen. Yeah. Wow. So around this time, just months before his death, so this is 2010, Gareth had been placed on secondment to MI6 in London. And it is quite common for analysts working at GCHQ to advise the intelligence service on various aspects of counterterrorism. But this was to be a three-year placement. So God only knows what Gareth had been working on at GCHQ and what he was going to be working on at MI6. It must have been, you know, real top secret stuff. I know, huge. Whatever it was, Gareth was now less desk-based and more field-based. MI6 put him up in a flat in a safe house in Pimlico in southwest London, approximately half a mile from their headquarters in Vauxhall, and Gareth did his best to adapt to London life. Now, little is known about the months Gareth spent in London. His sister Kerry did say that he struggled to fit into life in the capital city, though. He didn't socialise with colleagues or have any friends in London, mm. and consequently he would regularly go back to Anglesey to visit his family at the weekends. He complained of the competitive nature and office politics at work and also of the red tape he encountered at MI6. And don't forget for Gareth, work was everything to him. So mm. he wasn't happy there. And by the summer of 2010, just months after arriving in London to complete this three year secondment, he was already making arrangements to head north and back to his old life in Cheltenham at GCHQ. Oh, bless him. Isn't that sad? He was obviously mm. not happy there. Yeah. On the 11th of August in 2010, Gareth arrived back in London from the US where he had told family that he'd been on holiday. This wasn't strictly true. Gareth had been there primarily for work, to attend a conference on security in Las Vegas, 
although he did end his visit to America with a few days R&R. And I think I've heard of this conference. It happens, I think, every year, takes place in Vegas. And although it's kind of like widely known about, it does attract people in the security services. So they might, you know, kind of have people talking about different gadgets and different uh, communication tools that they have available to them. So it's a bit like a networking conference for people that are high up in their respective country's security yeah. service. But weird that lots of people kind of know about it and that there's all these people descending it on one place at the same time. It's such a target, I guess. I guess you couldn't um, just try and get into the, the um, conference, though, could you? Christ, trying to sneak into oh, something God, like no. that. No, absolutely not. So a few days after landing back from America in the UK, Gareth was seen on CCTV at 3pm on Saturday the 14th of August, walking past Holland Park Tube Station in West London. The next day, he was captured once again on CCTV, this time at 2pm as he was filmed at a cash machine before making his way to my favourite shop, Harrods, mm-hmm. where and then walking down Hans Crescent in Knightsbridge towards Sloane Street. And I think um, I was in London, not the weekend just gone, but the weekend before, and I've been ill since last Wednesday with symptoms. So I'm blaming London for making me sick. It's a busy, um, busy place, a lot of people in one place. Well, I went to the Saatchi Gallery to the Tutankhamun exhibition and it was rammed. There were like literally a hundred people in a room twice the size of your living room. And I I actually (sighs) felt claustrophobic at one Mm. point. It was that rammed. So, you know, it was my own fault. But at that time, the advice wasn't um, to socially uh, kind of isolate or um, distance. So I I just kind of did what I was allowed to do. But yeah. Yeah, I wish I hadn't done it. The only but thing I'm I okay. would say as well is I don't know whether you believe in this or not, but the ancient Egyptians would put curses on their tombs, and if oh, you're fuck going off. to yeah, like I didn't that, think of that. It could also be that you've been struck down by a curse. Oh my god, that's so it, true. I no, I I totally mm-hmm. do, and it was a really interesting exhibition actually, oh. and I'm not massively into all that stuff, but um, yeah, it was brilliant, and obviously it's been shut down since. Yeah. Um, but there, I think they had like 300 different artifacts from wow. the tomb when it was excavated, oh. and the, he's um, amazes me. He's it's just a bit of history that I just find oh so god incredible. yeah. You you don't get to see his kind of like mummified tomb or body but there's lots of pictures and stuff and Mm. there's all the stuff that was placed in the tomb it was really interesting but I've definitely been cursed as a result so my bad yeah um so Gareth is sauntering down um Sloane Street in Knightsbridge and these uh these images on CCTV uh they are the last images of Gareth alive He's believed to have been killed the very next day on Monday the 16th of August at the flat that he was living in in Pimlico Kerry, Gareth's sister, had subsequently tried to reach him on the telephone, but of course he didn't answer. She tried repeatedly over the following days, becoming increasingly worried when he continued to not answer the phone. And this wasn't like Gareth. The two were close and he was fastidious at keeping in touch. Mm. By this point, worried that something may have happened to her brother, Kerry called the police. But the security services were already onto it. They were concerned that Gareth hadn't shown up for work for the past week and had taken the somewhat unusual step of contacting the emergency services themselves. Do you know what? We've talked about this before in a previous episode and it might I'm have sure been season one about if I didn't show up in the morning of work, work would be ringing and trying to find out where I was. 
I, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe they were just thinking they got the dates wrong. Okay. So, you, you know, like maybe they're thinking, oh, maybe he's got this week off as well. And that's why they waited until Monday the 23rd mm-hmm. and thought, well, if he doesn't turn up today, then there's definitely a problem, um, which obviously is, is what happened. He didn't turn up and they did then phone the emergency services and they, they didn't make that call until quite late in the afternoon. So it's almost like they were very much waiting that day. Is he going to turn up? or is he not so um obviously he didn't and and they took that step and it was a bit weird um for them to phone 999 i thought i thought maybe they would have their own contacts mm-hmm. um where they could i don't know get in touch with i don't know a, a kind of special part of the police force to send somebody around to check but it was all just done very normally this very stern sounding woman uh, uh mi6 in london phone 999 to report him missing so um it's a bit weird, isn't I it? I find that really strange. I know that obviously nowadays it is a bit different because everybody's generally in like a work WhatsApp group and stuff like that. So maybe you'd be checked up on a bit quicker. And again, perhaps because of the type of job it is, you have a bit more like leeway on what you work from home or well, you work in the yeah. office. But I still find that really strange that they rung the police. Like, I find that weird. I don't necessarily find it that weird that they'd not seen him for a week and they'd not actually taken mm. any action because don't forget this is MI6. So this is not a normal office environment. They probably have people that um, are in the office one day and then not in for the next three months because they're out on an assignment abroad. Or like uh, you for, and they're pretending they're working from home. Very rude. <laughs> I am working from home. Um, but do you know what I mean? They, they probably mm-hmm. have people that, yeah, go off on these assignments for an undisclosed period of time. Yeah. They come back to the office like three months later and no, no question are asked because it's just the nature of the job Mm. and I also think it's probably the sort of environment where half the workforce don't even have a proper line manager you know somebody that they're ultimately accountable to I just I just get the vibe that there's a lot of autonomy there so am I that surprised that they did nothing when he didn't show for a week not given the context that we're looking at here what I do find weird is the fact that they phone 999 as I said why not just send somebody around to the flat? It's a flat that they own in Pimlico, which is half a mile from their headquarters. Surely you would just send a, a junior around with a key to check that he's okay. Um, that just probably shows how unworried they were up until that Monday, the 23rd. Mm, I don't know, because without trying to give too much away, I think that there's a reason they didn't want to be the people who went round to his flat. Well, this is in this is interesting because we'll come on mm-hmm. to all of that in part two. And what I will give... So you're saying you think, you know, MI6 could have real involvement in Gareth's yeah. death. Yeah. I personally... I'm kind of erring on the side that they they don't have anything to do with it. So I think Mm -hmm. that will make for quite an interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, on the 23rd of August at 6.30pm, a uniformed officer, PC John Gallagher, was sent to Gareth's top floor flat in Pimlico. A lettings agent who held a spare key showed PC Gallagher in. The lettings agent was asked to wait downstairs as PC Gallagher went up and entered the flat. And when he walked through the door, he noticed that it was dark, the curtains were drawn, and it was hot too. Although it was August and the sun was out, this wasn't heat from the sun penetrating the flat through a window. This was a sort of stifled, unnatural heat. PC Gallagher noted how clean the flat was. It wasn't necessarily tidy, but it was overly clean. 
There was an iPhone and two SIM cards on a table in the living room, a bright red wig hanging on the back of a chair, a laptop and another iPhone on the floor by the sofa, and there were clothes neatly piled on a bare bed in the master bedroom. In the same room, a dressing gown and duvet were strewn across the floor. PC Gallagher made his way to the ensuite in the master bedroom, and there in the bath was a red North Face bag, a fairly large holdall which looked like it was full. PC Gallagher attempted to pick it up, but it was heavy, and as soon as the bag was hovering just a couple of inches above the surface of the bath, he saw a putrid dark pink liquid dripping out from underneath. And it wasn't like it was blood, it was more like a liquid flesh colour mixed with blood. Sorry. PC Gallagher immediately dropped the bag and called for backup. A detective arrived and made a three-inch incision into the bag. He could see quite clearly now that there was a body inside. The flat was sealed off by scenes of crimes officers and an investigation began. Detectives noted nothing of value appeared to have been stolen from the flat. There were no signs of forced entry. Indeed, the front door appeared to have been locked from the outside, which was concerning. But other than that, there was no evidence that anybody else had been in the flat. No signs of a struggle. The bag in which Gareth was found had been locked from the outside. It had two zip toggles with holes in them, which had been padlocked together. When detectives got into the bag, they saw the body of a relatively small man in an accelerated state of decomposition, lying in a sort of contorted fetal position. What's more, the key to the padlock was inside the bag, underneath Gareth's body. It is just horrific, isn't it? Isn't that really sad to just picture that scene? And it's quite a gruesome scene, of course Mm -hmm. it is, but it's also a really sad scene, you know, Mm -hmm. when I picture it in my mind. Just curled up in a bag, the the key that could potentially have got him out is in there with him. It's just horrific. Yeah. So on August the 25th, two days later, Gareth's parents touched down at Manchester Airport. They'd been on holiday in the US and were oblivious to the fact their son was dead. They were met by two senior detectives who broke the news that two days earlier in London, a man believed to be their son had been found dead. As they were escorted to the capital to join their daughter Kerry, the news began to break that a secret intelligence officer had been found dead in suspicious circumstances. The press leapt on the story and no stone was left unturned as they delved into Gareth's private and professional lives. Due to the level of decomposition, Gareth's family was spared the horror of having to physically identify him. Police relied on family photos for this. Gareth's parents understandably wanted answers, and despite a major investigation being launched, codenamed Operation Finlayson, the Met were finding it hard to explain what the fuck had happened to Gareth. I think anybody would find it hard to explain what the fuck had happened to Gareth. It's ridiculous. I agree. It really is. So one major problem facing investigators was obviously the length of time that the body had lain undiscovered. Mm -hmm. Another was that they were being blocked by the security services from probing too deeply into Gareth's life. 
Detectives had no idea what Gareth really did. When they attempted to question his colleagues, they were met with blank faces and very vague details. Given his clearance and access to classified material, Gareth's death triggered alarm bells across Whitehall. MI5 agents swept through his flat, followed by detectives from the Homicide and Serious Crime Command, assisted by SO15, Scotland Yard's Counter-Terrorism Command. The street where Gareth's flat was located was cordoned off as home office scientists began processing the scene. Once the security services had departed, it was down to the murder squad to study the evidence. So far, they had a body in an advanced state of decay. There was no weapon and no sign of forced entry or even a struggle. Concentrating on the holdall and its contents, detectives established that Gareth had not been stabbed or shot. Home office pathologist Dr Ben Swift carried out a post-mortem that, together with the first batch of toxicology tests, came back as inconclusive. Inconclusive. Yeah, I know. It's got to Like, seriously, something. how unhelpful is that? Mm-hmm. Detectives were convinced that the perpetrator was forensically aware. There were no fingerprints left at the scene, no DNA other than trace DNA, which is basically useless and meaningless. And Gareth had been placed in a holdall, which was then put in the bath with the heating then deliberately turned up to deliberately accelerate the rate of decomposition. So this really did look like it was somebody who Mm -hmm. knew what they were doing. Mm Furthermore, any seeping liquid from his body had simply drained down the plug hole, thus minimising any smell. With such a heavily decomposed body, detectives stood no chance of obtaining any credible evidence, such as defensive wounds, scratches or DNA. Returning to the holdall, studying the zips and lock, police became certain that he could not have locked himself inside the bag. And there was further proof that someone else must have been in the flat with him. As I said earlier, his front door had been locked from the outside. Criminal psychologists studied the case. One thought Gareth's death might have been a masochistic ritual that had simply gone wrong, saying, for a retentive individual with an evergreen mind like Gareth Williams, always on duty and in control, the bag could have been a furtive release. And again, you know, that's one of the plausible explanations Mm -hmm. to Gareth's death. So we'll cover that in part two, which will be available immediately after you've listened to this episode. The Williams family was adamant that the Gareth they knew would not have behaved in this way. And for now, the family was all the police had since they had found no close friends or lovers. Police pathologists and forensic investigators agreed on one thing only. They would have to focus on the 12 days between the last call Gareth made to his sister and the discovery of his body on the 23rd of August. Pulling mobile phone records and credit card transactions, scouring hours of CCTV footage, the Operation Finlayson team dug deep as ever more lurid stories circulated. Another word I can't say. Another word you can't say. Um, But yeah, like all, can you imagine like things that are going to come out about you? It's it's just horrendous, isn't it? That it's not fair, really, no. because that you know he was entitled to live his his private life, and you know officers kind of put it to his parents and said, you know, we believe that Gareth was gay and may have had a, a secret lover or may have been you know arranging to meet people online, and his parents were like, Gareth's not gay, and officers were like, 
no, he definitely is. You know, we've, we kind of have proof of that. We've seen, um, his browser history, for example, and mm. what have you, you know, really personal detail to Gareth. And, you know, the police are just like, yeah, he is. I think as well, like you said, um, just a little bit before that, you know, this isn't the Gareth that we knew. Well, that's the case in a lot of people's lives. Your family know one person of you, your work colleagues know a different version of you. And they say that, don't they? They say, everybody has a different version of who you are of, in their of mind. course they do yeah i think that's you know yeah. we, we all do that I and i think i thought so much i do and i think you know of course your family's going to be like no that that's not the case or whatever i'm not saying there's anything wrong with anything but um it was his yeah choice i just not to, though not to yeah of course them, so, yeah. and i i just think i'm just like yeah, you know, just because you're saying that's not the Gareth we knew, I'm sorry, but y- you don't know shit, really. Mm-hmm. He's living his own life and, mm-hmm. you know, maximum respect to him for that. But, you know, that's his own life and there won't there will be certain things that you are just not privy to. Absolutely. So newspapers continue to print salacious details, which to this day, a lot of them actually have been denied by the investigation team. They said Gareth regularly used male escorts and that he was a cross-dresser, and there may have been some truth in the latter rumour. During a police search of Gareth's flat, detectives found 20 grand's worth of female designer clothes, which is weird, isn't it? I'm not yeah. saying cross-dressing is weird. No. I'm just saying, you know, that that's the explanation for that weird scenario. I do. You know, if he's got those clothes in his house, then that can only be explained by the fact that he's a cross-dresser, which is fine, absolutely. But that that's it obviously the case. Seem, yeah, it doesn't seem like the most logical link for me, personally. And What, that he's a, a cross-dresser yeah. because they found that? I think well, what do you think were... they were there for? Well, I... You know what I think? I think that these were planted, to be completely honest. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, of course. Um, I do get that as a smear. If you were going through his underwear drawer and he had boxes and then women's underwear as well, or or the clothes that you find in his wardrobe would fit the person that he's that same size, perhaps if things had been worn, or even if there was somebody who could back up that they'd been in a bar with him when he was dressed as a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Anything like that, fair enough. But when you've got items that are just totaling this much and they're new items i just don't see it as proof of anything no and uh, you know other commentators have actually stated that when gareth even though he was only on secondment to mi6 when gareth moved there there would have been a a high level of vetting that would have taken place so to be honest the security service would have uncovered if he was a cross-dresser and they actually wouldn't have taken him on. And again, no one's saying there's anything wrong with it, but it, it is a, a private information that could, if it got in the wrong hands, cause embarrassment to Gareth. So it could have potentially put him in a vulnerable position to blackmail. So there is no way in hell that if MI6 had known about it, they would have taken him on. And I wow. think they would have known about it, to be honest. I didn't know that, that they wouldn't take you on. But it makes sense. I know. It's, it's, weird, it's a potential but, embarrassment. I yeah, it's, yeah, it's an embarrassment fact. And I'm not saying anybody should feel embarrassed if they cross dress. Oh, no, we but, don't think they should, but uh, yeah, no, but some people will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something he did in secret that was private to him potentially. So, yeah. um, but anyway, as, as I say, just don't know here. Um, but the clothes were found in six boxes, all immaculately wrapped with the labels on mm-hmm. most of them, yeah. and they were from really good high end shops like Harrods and Harvey Nichols. So I don't even really think they had been worn. And you are swaying me already because I'm like i was very much like well he was obviously a cross-dresser right. but now i'm kind of like maybe not i just think if 
if I was going to be dressing as a man or I was going to be dressing in a different way to what I normally do, I don't think I would go out and spend 20 grand in one go or maybe not in one go, but clearly in a short space of time because it's all still wrapped. He hasn't, it seems like he hasn't worn this. Surely you'd go and you'd get something and then you'd be like, oh, do you know what? This does actually feel right to me. I do enjoy this. I'll go get something else. I just yeah, I don't feel like it would be logical to go and do that. And he's a logical person. Uh, totally. Of course he is. He's the most logical guy ever. Mm. And I also think you're right. You know, why Why was no underwear found? You know, was he just dressing yeah. up in dresses? I'm sure that he would have wanted underwear as well if he was a cross-dresser. I'm not an expert, um, but I feel like you'd start with underwear. I think so, yeah. And it would maybe progress from there. Um, so Gareth's family once again said there was no truth in the rumours that he was a cross-dresser and they believed that the clothes were actually gifts for his sister and a friend, a woman called Sean Lloyd-Jones, which is one of the wo- most Welsh names I've ever heard of. Um, so Sean said she and Gareth were close and that if he was a cross-dresser, he would definitely have confided in her. But I, like we said, I just don't know. I think there are some things that people just prefer to keep private from everybody. Yeah. So further stories emerged over the coming days saying that Gareth had accessed S&M websites and that wasn't disputed. So I think that was a fact that, that he had. doesn't mean anything though. Of course it bloody doesn't because it's not my bag, but I would say perhaps up to half the population have got some interest in that as a potential kink or yeah. fetish. I'm oh. trying to sound really cool by describing <laughs> it as a kink. I think that's what the kids call it these days. Um, we just called it fetish in my day. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think that's anything really. I think sometimes as well, if you go on certain porn sites, there's going to be pop-ups that come up or there might be links to other pages. You just don't yeah. know what he's at. He might have just been interested in looking into it. Yeah. Or it might have turned him on, but it doesn't mean that there's anything to I just, I don't know. Unless he was looking generally at people being put in bag porn and putting a bag in the bath porn non-stop I don't think it means he wanted to be put in a bag in the bath well I think he had potentially looked at some kind of escapology porn Mm -hmm. um but you know it's very wishy-washy details Mm -hmm. and it was very limited and a very tenuous link I think so we can pretty much discount that Mm -hmm. and you know you're kind of right all of this this sexual element to the case it does kind of smack of um a bit of a plant a bit of a character assassination so Um, We'll see. We'll come on to that in part two. Mm -hmm. By the end of September, after a second barrage of toxicology tests had proved inconclusive, Gareth's body was released and laid to rest in North Wales. On the 26th of September, the extended Williams clan gathered outside the Bethel Chapel in Holyhead to bid farewell. By this time, three pathologists had carried out autopsies on Gareth's body and they had come to the same conclusion, that he had died either as a result of asphyxiation or poisoning. That was basically down to a process of elimination. They just really didn't know. They didn't find poison in his system or proof that he had suffocated, but they had been able to kind of discount any other likely cause of death. So that was almost like that was all they were left with. At Gareth's inquest, his former landlady came forward to say that she had been woken once late at night by a very distressed Gareth who was calling for help from his bedroom. 
When she had gone to investigate with her husband, Gareth was lay on the bed with both of his wrists tied to the headboard, wearing just a pair of panties or boxer shorts, actually. But I thought panties sounded more fun. Um, But then you're basically being a dick and trying to character assassinate him as well. I'm sorry, I just wanted to say the word panties. Oh, stop saying it. He was definitely not in panties. He was in boxer shorts. And I'm sorry, guys, I'm just trying to have a bit of fun, but it's not funny. It's not fucking funny. Was he there, led on the bed with his hands tied? Was anybody else in the room, or was it nobody else in the room? And when I've looked at a picture of the house that he lodged in for ten years, um, it's quite a large house, to be honest. Quite a large detached house. And what they'd almost done it looked like the people that owned the house had just built a bedroom above the garage, so it was very much connected to the main part of the house. I cannot see that he would have had a separate entrance and exit. Um, so I, I can't see that anybody else was, uh, you know, just hiding or had kind of tied him up and then fucked off. Mm-hmm. I, you know, he'd quite clearly done this to himself. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's obviously really embarrassing. And Gareth sort of explained it away and said he was just messing around. But he totally agreed with his landlady that he wouldn't attempt to do anything like that again. And, you know, in, in the very British way, they, the two never discussed it again. And did she think that he'd done it sort of in a sexual manner then? She said that, yes, she discussed it with her husband and it was their conclusion that it was done um, Mm. through, you know, a sexual desire. Experts tested to see whether it would have been possible for Gareth to lock himself in the bag and they concluded that that would have actually defied the laws of physics. Ultimately, yeah, I mean, of course it fucking would. Like, it's ridiculous. Ultimately, Gareth's death was ruled as misadventure at his inquest. On the balance of probability, the coroner said that he was probably killed, that a third party had locked him in the bag before placing him in the bath in what she described as a criminally mediated act. But, of course, suspicion abounds, not least for Gareth's family. In a statement read by their solicitor outside Westminster's coroner's court, the family said... Our grief is exacerbated by the failure of his employers at MI6 to make even the most basic inquiries into his whereabouts and welfare, which any reasonable employer would have done. We are also extremely disappointed over the reluctance and failure of MI6 to make available the relevant information. We should like to ask the Met Police to look into and review how this investigation will proceed in light of the total inadequacies of SO15 and MI6, which have been highlighted during the inquest. And they went on to say Gareth was and always will be a special and adored son and brother. We miss him every single day and cannot describe the depths of the sorrow his absence leaves in our lives. We love you, Gareth, and will treasure your memory eternally. Mm, How sad. That's awful. I always, it really is. These bits, when we read out what the family statement, that's what always really brings it home, doesn't it? Sometimes we make a bit of a joke during the episode or we have our own thoughts, but then ultimately it's that family that are left with this Yeah, you're so, loss. so right, yeah. Absolutely. Oh. It's, it really is heartbreaking. And, you know, I think to lose a son, a brother... In an unexplained death is horrible. Of course it is mm-hmm. at 31. But to then have that, you know, just kind of paraded uh, through the press and on the news must have just been beyond comprehension. Yeah. 
So we will end this part of the episode here. Join us for part two now or whenever is convenient for you, where we discuss our theories into the unexplained death of Gareth Williams. Don't forget you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. So let us know what you think too. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone. We will see you in a couple of minutes. Bye. Bye.